Thank you for coming out, Dr. Westerhees, to another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, the International Edition. Today I have with me Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at the Cordery Compliance Law Firm in London, and we take a deep dive into some of the key differences in the evaluation of corporate compliance programs document around FCPA compliance and compliance under the UK Bribery Act. I think you'll find this a fascinating uh, podcast with lots of good information. There's a, a very good chart Jonathan and his team have put together that I'll link to in the show notes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to the international edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. Jonathan Armstrong coming to us from uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, did you, Jonathan, did you have any initial impressions uh, when you read the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, what, really one way or the other? Yeah, I think it's an interesting document, to be honest. It's, I think, a kissing cousin of the Ministry of Justice guidelines that we had when we updated our uh, Bribery Act. Um, there was some, the MOJ, as you know, is not the same as the DOJ in terms of its role, but um, but I think the documents are quite similar and the thinking is quite similar. I don't think that's a coincidence because the US authorities helped the UK authorities put the uh, Section 7 guidance in place. But most of the things I think carry across, I've been doing myself a little table, and there are a few gaps. Uh, the most significant, perhaps, is the concentration on middle management. The uh, UK guidance is very much sort of top-down tone from the top, and it misses out the mood from the middle, as it's known, which, uh, which seems to be a feature of the, of the US guidance and isn't really there in the UK guidance. And that might be a sign of how we've moved on since... Uh, you know, six or seven years ago when the first draft of the MOJ guidance came out. So with uh, with that, Jonathan, what I thought I might do is really explore if uh, in, in some detail the evaluation and see if you thought any of the things that the Department of Justice was now asking or even suggesting might negatively impact a compliance practitioner uh, in the EU or the United Kingdom, or if, or if you really think that... Uh, they're consistent. So really, if you look at um, prong number one entitled analysis and remediation of underlying misconduct, the first one is a root cause analysis. And that is something that is new, was not in the 2012 DOJ and SEC guidance, has really not been talked about. Anyone who has been in a corporation or an industry is certainly familiar with that term of root cause analysis. But is there anything there that strikes you as might cause a compliance practitioner in your part of the world uh, grief, or is that something that is really done on a routine basis? I think the challenges there are, and we've talked about this before, Tom, the rise of data protection and privacy law in Europe. So we have to always be very careful when we scope this type of analysis uh, exercise because those in the EU have data privacy data protection rights, and they will change in May 2018. Now, in some respects, the situation's got a little easier, perhaps, by 
France, for example, introducing Sapin-Dern, having local law requirements to do this type of analysis. But there's something new called the General Data Protection Regulation, which comes into force in just over 440 days' time in May uh, next year, which I think does change the game uh, from, a, from a data protection point of view. One of the rights that GDPR introduces is something called the right to be forgotten. That was before the European Court again last week, the judge made law. Uh, but the consequences, I think, are that individuals who are being investigated could ask that the data on them was forgotten. We've already seen that in a Russian case, uh, the Goryev and Goryeva case, uh, which is before or has been before the UK High Court. And to give you an example of the difficulty of the decision-making process here, I just did a little bit of analysis on the Rolls-Royce case. Now, uh, I'm using some figures that I've just obtained from the internet, which might not be the most accurate, but we know that the serious fraud office fine for Rolls-Royce's misconduct from a bribery point of view, was 497 million sterling. The potential fine for Rolls-Royce in May 2018 for getting the investigation wrong from a data protection point of view would be 549 million. So whilst we might think that the 497 figure is staggering in itself, you could get a situation where a corporation faces a higher fine for conducting the investigation wrongly than it does for the conduct that it is investigating. So I guess Rolls-Royce's decision almost uh, whether they, if you like, walked over the privacy rights of the individuals to get to the SFO in time, I guess that decision was quite easy last year. I think it becomes a more complex decision in 2018 because the higher fines potentially could be for data protection missteps rather than the original bribery. That is uh, pretty astounding. Uh, any thoughts on whether that type of analysis could be used against a uh, United States domicile corporation yet with operations in either the United Kingdom or in an EU country? I think it could, yes. And and as you know, the, the decision isn't as stark as that, because obviously the fines could be unlimited for bribery, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think it is a difficult decision for U.S. corporations. U.S. corporations will be directly within the reach of, of GDPR, um, even you know if they employ individuals or they target individuals in, in Europe. So you don't even need to have a subsidiary company in the EU to come under GDPR. And you could get a situation, I think, where a corporation investigates, does a deal with the US authorities to settle the bribery, and then has a subsequent investigation from the EU authorities for the way in which it's handled data. And I think because of the way in which uh, deals are, uh, you know, elements of the deals become public, that would be hard uh, to defend any, any prosecution like that. Uh, and we're already seeing the level of fines 
go up in Europe uh, yesterday, for example, the Italian authorities uh, fined um, uh, a number of companies 11 million euros for their part in a scheme allegedly to bypass foreign exchange uh, control rules into China. So we're already seeing this tie-up of data privacy and other elements of uh, bad conduct investigation. So, Jonathan, uh, you mentioned the um, sort of difference in the mood in the middle and the tone from the top. But turning to prong two, it's it's got three separate inquiries. One, it looks at uh, certainly top leadership. Second, it looks at the begins to look at the operationalization of compliance through the shared commitment of other senior leaders and stakeholders, and even ask some questions about the board. And I was just wondering, in is there a difference in the UK uh, either corporate structure or really even corporate um, culture that would not allow uh, senior leadership to have its uh, compliance conduct or compliance tone monitored? Is that something that uh, a UK company could could reasonably well do within the culture of, of UK corporations? I, I think there's certainly a need to address compliance in, in, in UK boards, and that's been recognized for some time. You know, we've had various reports like the Cadbury report, which looked at how boards operate and the level of independence, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd, I'd hesitate to say it's better than the US, um, but I think most UK public entities are aware of the fact that, for example, the CEO's role and the chairman's role needs to be split. And it's relatively rare that we have a CEO who transitions into chairing the board, whereas my impression is it is more common for a CEO to chair the board in, in US corporations. We um, are driven, I think, in the UK certainly, on having non-exec directors and having them independent, and usually they will take the, the lead on compliance matters. Again, I see that from most of the US corporates I deal with as well, that if there is an incident, it's quite often, you know, the chair of the audit committee or the senior um, non-exec director who, who takes the lead on that. So in some respects, I think there are some similarities. Uh, and I think there is a an awareness that boards need to increase the compliance uh, specialists on the board as well. Uh, and I think we're seeing uh, my personal, um, I suppose my personal observation is that I think we've seen a diversification of boards of UK public companies in the last 10 years. And I mean that, you know, truly in terms of uh, gender, but also in terms of skills and backgrounds. I think that our largest public corporations aren't as uh, aren't as black and white as they used to be in terms of who sits on the board and whether they knew each other and went to school uh, with each other before. And I think that in itself increases the compliance uh, quality, if you like, of, uh, of the boards in the UK. Now, I'd like to say this was a completely voluntary process. 
I think actually a lot of it is pressure from shareholders, particularly some of the larger pension funds who've taken a good look at corporate governance and have uh, suggested or in some cases dictated to companies that they have to improve. And there are still one or two that you could name that aren't as, uh, as, as transparent as they might be in terms of how they appoint. So under prong three, there are some questions relating directly to the compliance function and the chief compliance officer. Uh, and it, it, it drills down into the level of titles, salary, rank within the corporation. Um, do you have a sense of uh, the chief compliance officer or the chief compliance function having the kind of status in the United Kingdom or the EU that it would in a U.S. company? Or is that something that is really still evolving uh, in your part of the world? I would say as a gut reaction, this is something that the U.S. usually does better. I think in the U.K. and certainly in uh, other European countries, compliance tends to be um, Cinderella rather than the ugly sister. And pre-transformation Cinderella as well. So the uh, compliance team are often relatively low in the hierarchy. Uh, commonly, it tends to be somebody who is doing that, I think, as their last role within the corporation, but not from uh, you know a more senior role. And the same is true of legal teams as well. I think it's, um, if I just look at our client base, I think more of our US clients have a seat at the board than those of our non-US clients. And sometimes still legal is at least a step away and compliance a step underneath. So for example, I can think of one client where legal reports through finance uh, and compliance reports to legal. I, I don't think that's the right structure, and I don't think that would be defensible really under these um, under these new guidelines. So, we, uh, in the U.S., we would say that that role is filled by someone who used to be a coach. So. Um, Coach would go first uh, in the sort of 70s and 80s when you put a coach out to pasture. He went to personnel. Uh, that later became a little more professional with uh, human relations. And so then coach went to uh, compliance. So I certainly understand the uh, the oh. compliance function being the uh, corporate office of last resort, or not last resort, but of last sitting before you uh, rotate out into the great beyond. Uh, yeah, right. In, uh, sometimes, of course, that's sometimes, of course, that's a good thing because <laughs> some of these people can know where all the skeletons are buried right. and have good uh, internal networks, and also not be too concerned about advancement at the end of the role. But in many cases, I've seen it somebody you know, who's ready to be put out to pasture. So prong four really gets down to some fairly specific requirements around the operationalization. And I'd like to ask you uh, really around prong 4B, which is entitled operational integration. It's got a series of um, questions around integration, internal controls, uh, detailing down into payment systems and uh, certification and approval processes. 
in the United States, we would see many of these as, as really just uh, standard corporate functions that you would have to have, certainly in terms of internal controls. Obviously, payroll is one uh, that every corporation should have. Uh, and that these controls would be probably designed by the functional units that use them, whether that be finance, whether it be accounts payable, whether it be another uh, corporate function. Uh, do you think that uh, this really key operational section would translate over even if it was called something different in the United Kingdom or the EU, or is this really uh, would require an evolution as well? I think, again, there's a mix. Um I mean, if you look at different corporations, I think they have different attitudes to these type of controls. And usually their attitude changes after they've had an episode, whether that's a public episode or, or, or an EMS. So if you look at Siemens, for example, obviously they had various controls and systems in place. Uh, it was, as I understand it, relatively easy to get petty cash before their incidents and as I understand it, very difficult to get cash afterwards. So I think for most organizations, uh, absent some sort of audit or their, or, you know, or, their, or their auditors getting interested in this as an area of activity, and I think that's increasing, they're not really proactively looking at these issues. They're certainly reactively looking at them if they have an episode, particularly when they know they're going to have to speak to a regulator and they're wanting to prove that they now have adequate procedures in place to stop that sort of thing happening again. So I would certainly be filing this under work in progress, I think, for Europe. So you, you visited with, with uh, us, uh, the Everything Compliance Group, with myself on the FCPA uh, Compliance Report podcast rather extensively on data protection and how that would impact investigations. But do you see that same those same concerns moving into the risk assessment area, or is that because that's a is that a different enough inquiry that uh, data protection and data privacy really would not impact uh, as in talk about in prong five? Uh, I think it does still impact. I mean, I think it does impact the risk assessment, and in some respects, it can be more challenging to look at these type of issues from a data privacy point of view before there's an incident because as a general rule data protection law can allow you to do certain things if there's you know a bad thing has happened but uh, you have less leeway if you're trying to make some sort of a, a you know a general inquiry into the into the state of the corporation or its suppliers or whatever so i think that yeah, it, it, it does impact throughout the um, planning and risk analysis that, that you're doing and obviously impacts areas like due diligence as well, which are a focus here in, uh, in uh, prong 11 to look at uh, you know, pre-acquisition due diligence. Again, that can be challenging from a data privacy point of view as well because you probably don't have the consent of the employees in the business you're acquiring. Jonathan, in prong six, it discusses uh, compliance training. And although this is not new, this is uh, probably as cutting edge as something in the United States uh, as there is in the entire evaluation. And that's in terms of uh, assessing compliance training effectiveness, 
measuring effectiveness and having tailored training, not just uh, for based upon high risk, low risk, or medium risk, but really tailored to the the business or the operation of the individual who's receiving the compliance training. Are these things that uh, the UK is uh, also uh, evolving with, or would you say um, this would be a problem for UK companies? No, I, I think the US and the UK are more or less on the same page with this, I would think. I've had discussions with people at the Zero's Fraud Office about you know, the efficacy of training and how tailored it is, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that there's been some joint work between the US and the UK looking, for example, at how effective standard online training packages are, uh, i.e., you know, not very, uh, in, certainly in terms of high-risk employees. So I think there is a recognition that training to be effective does need to be risk-based. I think there is a recognition that the form needs to follow that analysis. So I've been involved, for example, in one-on-one -on -one training of a uh, of an agent that my client was engaging to do something that's um, that's high risk. Obviously, they did due diligence on him. He comes across as somebody who it is perfectly proper to do business with, but they just thought the extra reassurance of having somebody sit down with him and give him a proper session one-on-one -on -one, face to face was was an investment worth making and I think that's right I think uh, you know an, an off-the-shelf package would be an expensive way of training somebody like that and also um, not as effective of sitting him down and, and and looking at the at the whites of his eyes and equally I think this sort of concept of multi-touch, which I agree isn't isn't new, you know, the Morgan Stanley declination, for example, had elements of that. But I think to train people properly not to do bad things, that does require frequent touch. And, and, and particularly, I think there's a, you know, allegedly an age thing at play as well, that I think that whilst those of our age, Tom, you know, might uh, learn effectively through a one-hour session, then I think at least the perceived wisdom is that our younger employees might want, you know, to be told um, uh, a 10 six-minute things rather than one one-hour thing. So I think attention spans can be shorter. And part of the mix will be, as as it suggests here, looking at all sorts of different ways of giving guidance. So it might be quick fact sheets, it might be short films, it might be face-to-face -face sessions, it might be cascade learning. And I think all of that has to be risk-based. So different people in the business will be taught different things at different times. And Jonathan, I'd like to end by uh, focusing on prong eight, because this is really, uh, I think, a key metric on the operationalization of compliance and it's really uh, directly focuses on HR, human resources. And would um, a UK company be comfortable having the HR department involved in discipline if required for someone who has violated a code of conduct, engaged in unethical behavior that violated uh, a company policy or procedure, or indeed violated the uh, FCPA or the UK Bribery Act? I think this is a very challenging discussion. And 
it is a discussion that we're having over here. Um, and we're also having that in other parts of mainland Europe as well. For example, as you might know, in France, a whistleblower helpline complaint should not go to HR because the French want there to be a separation of the investigatory team and the HR team. And their rationale is if the investigatory team decide that there is no case to answer, then you know, then that information is still contained and the, and, and the suspect isn't prejudiced in their life with the organisation. At the same time, we've had some at the SFO believe that HR professionals should be more involved in conducting internal investigations. And the rationale for that seems to be so that privilege isn't an argument because HRs leading the investigation, not legal. And so that would allow the SFO unfettered rights to access all of the documents from the initial investigation without somebody saying that this bit or that bit was privileged. Whether that's in the public interest, I am not sure. You know, we go back to this case called Dardala, for example, that uh, uh, where the prosecution failed. And we're not exactly sure why, but it seems to me that following the right process and procedure is in everybody's best interest, really, to give the victim uh, a, a chance for their um, worries to be heard, to give the suspect a chance to defend him or herself and to enable the investigation to get at the truth in an impartial manner. So from a personal point of view, I think HR can be useful in supporting the investigation, but I wouldn't want to see them lead it. I think HR has other uh, bits of good compliance that they do have to lead, however. First of all, due diligence on new hires. I don't see enough of that. And particularly in key areas, that can be critical. You know, we don't take a ref references on employees. What, why don't we when they're being recruited into, into critical areas? And secondly, on remuneration as well. I think there is obviously a flavour throughout this document that we have to make sure that people are paid for good behaviour, not bad. And again, I'd like to see HR teams take the lead on that as well and look at proper ways of recompensing people that don't reward bad behaviour. Well, Jonathan, thank you. My pleasure, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report International Edition. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help our rankings and also get out the word of, about this most interesting new podcast I have uh, put out on the marketplace. Also, if you have any questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>